I've just had a delicious bowl of soup and beans for my lunch, so I'm going to be making the most excellent mouth sounds for the next hour and a half. Hi everybody, welcome to the sixth episode of your favourite queer podcast, Pronouns in Bio, and today on the show, in honour of Valentine's Day and LGBT plus History Month, and more important than either of them, Bree's birthday, we're yeah. going to be talking about love. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> that is our attitude towards love. Um, it's not really evolved since primary school did you ever used to do that thing in primary school where someone it was like it wasn't quite if someone had done something wrong so much as a generic term of like accusal or mockery where you'd be like um Mm, maybe i really i feel like i just like don't have that many memories of being that age like i struggled to remember what i did last week like let alone 25 years ago (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> like my my memory is like terrible yeah because i've got a famously scant memory of that whole period of my past mm. but i do remember if someone it was a bit like the like seven-year-old version of when someone drops a tray at spoons and you go wait hey! yeah <laughs> it was like that like if someone was caught kissing someone else or holding hands or whatever but also if someone like talked back to a teacher or I don't know, wore their backpack the wrong way, the, the, who can penetrate this weird culture that kids formulate? I went to a religious primary school um, where like holding hands and kissing was like strictly banned. Like you could not have boyfriends and girlfriends. And if like the wow. teachers ever caught wind of like someone having a crush on someone else, they would literally get like pulled aside and have like a really stern talking to by the teachers. That's it's just, like, crazy. It's really fucked up when you think about it. Just like, yeah, not not cool. Especially on kids of that age. They're just so small. Like, leave them alone. Yeah. Like, what are they gonna do? They're like six. Like, for God's sake. Exactly. Yeah. Like, I feel like in secondary school, a lot of the various different strategies that happened, you know, to try and like, I guess, keep teenagers apart, all of which failed, not least because they're like broadly heteronormative. Yeah, and also like you can't just be like, don't do thing because then the teenager is going to be like, okay, well, now I want to do thing even more. I don't know why I'm attributing that to like teenagehood. Like I am so guilty of that. This kind of like reverse psychology works on me every time. Like if my partner's just like, (laughs) get out of bed. I'm just like, no. And he's like, fine, stay in bed. And I'm like, fine, I'll fucking get up then. (laughs) Like it works on me every time. We have this affinity on each other, right? Mm, Like... mm -hmm. I will be the most resolute person about deciding that like something is ruined and I don't want to do it anymore until you're just like, but well, I'm doing it. And then I'm like, well, well, well now, now I'm I doing to do it. it. I feel like you should tell the story about the flutes and about where I'm at <laughs> in that situation. <laughs> so for the listeners at home, the flute situation is I'm quite an active sleepwalker. Nighttime Cleo is a very different person who gets up to all sorts of hijinks while my eyes are closed. And lately, I think because I've moved house recently, I'm under quite a lot of stress at work. I've got quite advanced in my nocturnal perambulations. And um, I've started ordering things on my phone while I'm sleeping. (laughs) Most of it's just like Googling shit or whatever. There was quite a weird moment when I'd ordered some pizza in my sleep. And then obviously this guy comes to the door with pizza and I'm like, why are you here? (laughs) Anyway, 
Did you pay for the pizza? I'd already paid for the pizza. Oh, shit. That's kind of like a little treat for yourself, though. I'd be quite happy with a surprise pizza. Yeah. It was one in the morning. Oh, okay. Maybe not. <laughs> you can have it for breakfast. Maybe I just need to start going to sleep before dinner and then... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Time it right. I'd had um, a dream which... You know what? I'll tell you my dream. Oh, I'm sure everyone's desperate to hear about your dream. Listeners at home, particularly those of you who've been very generous and given us actual money so that we can continue, here is a dream I had one time. <laughs> <laughs> Top tier so content. Was, yeah, you can just skip forwards if you like. <laughs> I was living in a beautiful house that was overlooking the river. Mm. And there were these metal slats on the side of the house and I learned to play them like a glockenspiel. And... In my sort of half-asleep, half-awake state, I had this desperate desire to create music. And honestly, for years, I've been fannying around with the idea of buying myself a second-hand flute, because I played it when I was a kid, and I was pretty good. In that way that, like, when you're a kid, you're not really very good, but you're, like, better than they expect a child to be, and so everyone tells you you're good and just mm-hmm. gives you carte blanche to make your horrible noise for the next 15 years or whatever. Mm-hmm. Anyway, one thing led to another, and I kind of half-asleep entered a conversation with a purveyor of second-hand flutes online. But because I was half asleep, miscommunicated and ended up buying two flutes. So now I have two flutes. (laughs) And you're trying to persuade me to take the second flute. Oh yeah, I forgot that was why we started this conversation. (laughs) Well, yeah, so I was talking about getting rid of my second flute. Re, you also used to play flute, right? Yeah, briefly when I was like, yeah, 10 or 11. Well, yeah, I, like, I don't have any desire to play flute again. But then when I heard Cleo had bought two flutes, I was just like, one for re. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it literally went from like, Lamau, look at two flutes, wanker over here. To like, well, if you've got one going. <laughs> I've so far assisted the flute, but we'll be sure to update you on subsequent episodes if I do succumb to, to flute madness. We could do yeah. a little flute duet on the show. Was, yeah. <laughs> Pronounced bio episode seven. We'll do our own intro music. Okay, that does sound like a good idea, but specifically to me. So I don't know if it's actually a good idea. If we don't get any emails saying, please God, do not do your own flute music, <laughs> then we'll take that as a nod that all of our listeners want us to do our own flute music. Absolutely. Yeah. What were we talking about? Oh, love. Okay. We were talking... (laughs) So in conclusion, it might be a radical act of love for me to take your spare flute from you. It would be a radical act of queer love for you to take my spare flute. Yes. It's astonishing that I can say that without like a hint of euphemism. That's literally (laughs) what I want to happen. Yeah. There's no, there's no like winking going on. Like, it's not a euphemism. (laughs) This is a flute podcast right now. Although you did text me when the flute arrived with a photo of yourself holding it saying, come get this pipe. <laughs> <laughs> so did you did do that, yeah. I have really sold out for that joke as well because the flute isn't even in the pipe family of woodwind instruments. So, you know. <laughs> it's pipe shaped. It's pipe shaped. <laughs> come get this pipe shaped. <laughs> doesn't quite have the same ring. Although I guess that is more trans-inclusive. That's true, yeah, this pipe-shaped object. Yeah, trans masks, like, whatever <laughs> whatever you wear, whatever you use, lesbians, everyone out there, we got you covered with our pipe analogies. We, we promise 100% <laughs> inclusivity. No. Fucking flute podcast. 
Come to flutetunes.com for more cutting-edge <laughs> queer discussion. <laughs> we were in the middle of quite a good point, I thought. You were talking about them telling like little kids off for holding hands and shit. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think what I was going to say before we got fluted was I think that often like the desire to do that with teenagers emerges from a misguided idea about sex education that if you can like keep them from learning about it then you can keep them from doing it which has never worked in the history of like mankind because you already said like about being told not to do the thing makes you want to do the thing Mm. thus the flutes Mm -hmm. but like if you went to my school because we had so little sex education then like being told not to do the thing was how you learned about the thing yeah yeah that's actually really true we only got that pipe because someone came out and said don't get it God, I'm now getting flashbacks to the sex ed classes we had in secondary school. They were called PSHE, like Personal Social Health Education, I think that stood for. And it was like this kind of weird tacked on thing that the teachers took turns teaching us how to like, like what taxes were and also how to put a condom on a big blue dildo. We had them, although we had, Christ, I'm just remembering it. We had a series of quite like sensitively multicolored ethnically diverse fake penises to put the condoms on Mm. but there was this issue where they just gave us the tiniest condoms (laughs) and these plastic penises were too long we had like one sample blue dick that was like held up by the teacher but it was like fucking enormous it was Mm. ridiculously large i sort of wish that they'd just like done the banana thing that you see in like TV mm-hmm. and American movies or whatever, because I guess the plastic penises were supposed to take away from the fact that a banana is a bit silly. But yeah. the thing is, they weren't like anatomically like penises. They looked like the sort of penis that you'd draw in a bathroom wall. They didn't have any kind of like plasticity to them or anything. And so they were bloody hard to get a condom on. Yeah, they were like rock solid, rock solid. And I'd put a condom on a penis at that point. but I And I was here like struggling to do it in PSHE, which by the way, I love that you called Pishi. Pishi. <laughs> yeah. That, that sounds like one of those things people with vaginas used to pee in fields or whatever. A sheepy. Pishi. Yeah. Pishi. Sheepy. <laughs> the sex ed lessons were like so horrendously embarrassing and also so straight. Like I don't think there was ever a mention of like queer or gay sex at all i would have had those classes post section 28 so like it would have te- it would have been allowed but it still didn't happen maybe we should talk about this for a minute actually so for the listeners at home who might not be from the uk or might be a bit younger section 28 was a law or a section of a law in the uk that was only repealed in 2006 and it basically prohibited any positive portrayal of what was referred to as a sort of homosexual lifestyle or homosexuality in UK schools. And what this had the effect of was effectively banning exposure to anything gay to, you know, all the little gay kids who were growing up. Because I'm slightly older than Ree, Section 28 basically covered until my final school year, which I think was a, a huge contributor in, you know, not really figuring out who I was. I always knew I was gay in one way or another, but there was absolutely nothing to help anchor or define that. The only context you heard about any kind of queerness in were bad ones, either from, you know, your classic conservative media or from homophobic teachers. I've actually just like looked up the actual wording of section 28 and it's like fucking horrendous. It says, 
The amendment was enacted on the 24th of May, 1988, and stated that a local authority, quote, shall not intentionally promote homosexuality or publish material with the intention of promoting homosexuality or promote the teaching in any maintained school of the acceptability of homosexuality as a family relationship. Yeah, it's insane. Like, Jesus Christ. Like, imagine being a kid with gay parents in those classes. Jesus. It's 2006. The worst part about it being 2006 is that all of the politicians who not only authored section 28 but also like continuously voted against repealing it are still in office it was 2000 and, it was 2003 was it 2003 sorry <laughs> 2003 but yeah like all of those i mean boris johnson campaigned against it against the repeal yeah theresa may helped author it and widdicombe helped author it like these are all people yeah. who have continued to hold promising places in the public eye in politics i mean the literal prime minister right of like this country like like Tony Blair tried to get it repealed earlier when he was leader of the opposition. Or would he have been prime minister at that time? I actually don't know. I don't know the timeline of British history. I choose to ignore <laughs> it. His motion to get it repealed was unsuccessful and like Boris just like tore him apart in the national press to be like, you know, too fucking right. We need to keep this law in forever because fuck the gays. It's absolutely wild. These are still people we see on like a day-to-day basis in our political system. And it's like, it seems obvious to me that they still think this way, that they still feel this way. And and it seems obvious to me that the political fabric around section 28 is being repeated in the current state of discourse around trans rights in the UK. Yet without fail, every February... The fucking, all of the Tory MPs line up their little fucking tweets to be like, happy LGBT history month. It's just like, get our name out of your fucking mouth. In it, yeah. Like, Put the fucking rainbow icon Get the fuck. <laughs> yeah, right? Rainbow fucking Tories. Oh, it makes me fucking sick. I know. It's absolutely disgusting. Get the fuck off. <laughs> anyway, once, should we stop being divisive and talk about love? <laughs> 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 I think at its core... Me saying rainbow Tories make me fucking sick. That's an expression of love. Yeah, it's an expression of love. I don't even think it's an expression of division. If love is the glue in the queer workshop, then it's also the fucking lathe. And some people are due a fucking lathing. I was thinking about this in the lead up to recording where I was just like, I think anger is an expression of love in a queer context. Yeah, I was actually talking to Sean about this the other day, one of our mutual friends, about having... For a long time after I came out as trans, but before I get, I suppose, more actively engaged in activist work of building this personality for myself as just like this ocean of calm and being completely unruffled by anything and really like building that into like, oh, this is what like a good personality is, is someone who, even though the world is really bad sometimes, is Mm. unshakable. I actually remember talking to you about it before... Do you remember when we went to see churches? I think we talked about it afterwards. Because it was about then that I started having a realisation that I was making myself maybe a slightly happier person, but I think I was making myself a weaker person, partially by by not getting angry, but also by treating calm as if it's the opposite of anger rather than just a different mm. way of living with anger. Yeah. And I think you're right that anger is... It's, it, it's productive. Yeah. And it's important that it stays productive. Like, impotent yeah. anger can consume you and kill you, but it can also drive you. Yeah, I think channeling the anger into something productive is a good place to put it. To take it back to love, not just being angry at the people that you hate, but being angry for the people that you love, 
I think, is a really That's important a great way of putting it. I'm sure we were going to say something else, but I can't remember now. Now I'm just angry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just fucking rad. I want to fucking fight. The next part of the show is called Gays of Future Past. Ree, tell us a little bit about what Gays of Future Past entails. Gays of Future Past is our regular segment on this show where either Cleo or I will attempt to convince the other that a person or figure, uh, real or fictional or historical, was in fact gay and or trans. Thank you very much. So we've actually got a very special gay, open brackets, S, close brackets, of future past on the show today. Even more special, perhaps, than Joe Biden. (laughs) I was really hoping you were going to say Gandalf. (laughs) 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 Like, you ever hope for Gandalf and end up with Joe Biden? (laughs) It feels bad. It's bad, eh? 2021 (laughs) in a nutshell. (laughs) I thought 2020 would be a Gandalf year, but it turned out to be a Joe Biden year. Yeah. F's in the chat. Participating in UK politics, in any politics, as a trans person is just every single day waking up, hoping for Gandalf and going to bed with Joe Biden. It's <laughs> all you can do. <laughs> if you don't eat your Joe, you can't have your Gandalf. Enlighten me. Who is our gaze of future past? Our gaze of future past this month is the viewer at home. It's the girl reading this. The listener? Yeah, the listener. That's what I meant to say. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The girl listening to this. So I want to start with a little question. Ree, do you think we have... Do you think we have any gay listeners? Yes, I would say we probably do. Okay, cool. That's good to know. Do you think we've got any trans listeners? I hope so. Yeah, me too. I sometimes listen back to the podcast, or it accidentally shuffles up on my Spotify, so we've got at least one trans listener. I think we've got some trans listeners out there. In fact, I literally know because I've spoken to some of our uh, trans listeners uh, via our Patreon and Ko-fi accounts, so trans listeners out there who are thinking, what the fuck, I'm not being represented on this podcast. You can't see it, but I'm doing the little thumb and four fingers, old money rubbing gesture. <laughs> the visual medium, baby. The theatre of the mind. What about our, like, straight and or cis listeners? Are they also our gaze of future past? This is what I got to thinking. Okay. And there are two strands to this. One of which is, lately I've been thinking about the beauty that's there in coming out. And I think even less than coming out, which is, I actually think, almost less important than the journey. Coming to yourself a bit later in life. Mm -hmm. You know, I always knew I was gay, but lots of our friends have come to that more recently. We know people beyond that who've come to it even later than life than that, who are, you know, 20, 30 years older than us. One thing I've been thinking about off the back of thinking about what a wonderful and diverse set of journeys this show says, even if they do sometimes come from bad things like the Section 28s of the world, is that even when we get to a point where we think we know ourselves or we think we know who we are or who we want to be, that fixity is always subject to change. And that change is really beautiful. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you know what it's like to be a trans person and to feel like you've had to fight so hard for your identity. And I think that can Mm -hmm. make us really loath to let go of it Um, Mm. and to let go of the idea that this is who we are now. I think because, like, part of it is that 
there's this like quite pervasive narrative that like being gay or trans is a choice Mm. and that if we dare to change the way we describe ourselves you know come to terms with a different facet of our identity that ostensibly might change the word that we use to describe ourselves that like that will get misconstrued in a Mm. way Mm. that like the person that we were before was in some some way false and it's like a tacit acknowledgement of that fact if you dare to to change yeah totally so in terms of my own trajectory I think thinking, oh, I've found a word for what I am and it's bisexual, really screened my trans identity for a long, long time because of this idea that you you, you work out what you are and then that's it. Mm-hmm. I think even within that as well, like we feel like we have to inhere to these very fixed taxonomies in order for our identities to be valid. But, you know, mm-hmm. even within like being bisexual or being transgender or something, my sense of identity has changed. Like my relationship to things like mask or femme or whatever... Mm. have changed and I think actually it took talking to people who've come out or who've worked themselves out later in life for me to accept that in myself that these changes are Mm. constant and ongoing yeah which is in as much as to say that if anyone is sat there at home thinking I know who I am but you've not taken the time lately to have a little peer under the hood and see what's going on then this (laughs) section of the show is for you Part of this is to say, maybe you can actually be a gay of future past without even being that gay at all. Maybe mm. you're straight, but there was that one time when you just sort of like looked at your flatmate after they just came <laughs> out of the shower. And you were just like, huh. And maybe like, but that doesn't make you gay. Of course it doesn't make you gay. Nothing can fundamentally change how you feel about yourself. But maybe you still sometimes think about it every so often when the rain's falling a certain way outside the window, you know? Nobody has the right to delineate what makes you gay and what doesn't make you gay. That comes from within and it's perfectly fine for your understanding of yourself to shift and change no matter like where you are in your yeah, life. Yeah, exactly. Like maybe you like experimented at school and then found out that actually compulsory heterosexuality suits you just fine. That is absolutely fine. You can call yourself whatever you want. And on the flip side to all of our queer siblings out there, who are attracted to any combination of genders, but haven't had sex with one of them. To, you know, all all my lesbians who've not kissed a girl, or our ace mates, to all of our queers of all combinations who feel like they haven't fulfilled one or the other part of their identity. You don't have to. You Mm. don't have to. You are who you are, and the fact that this is arranged along structures of gender and sexuality is just that, is a structure that we use to make up a word. That you're not passing a test, you know? That's very uplifting. I found that quite uplifting. I hope everyone else did too. I'm convinced that everyone listening to this is our gay of future past in one way or another. Yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, like, I'll spare you the poetry, but if you're at home listening to this podcast and maybe you're thinking like, oh, I'd quite like to try wearing whatever the conventional clothes of the opposite gender is. Or maybe you're thinking, man, actually, my flatmate is looking really good. (laughs) I mean, the flatmate thing I would, like, hesitate with caution, considering that, like, we are in lockdown, and if it goes badly, you can't leave. That's true. Yeah, maybe I should stop living out my private erotic fan. I've been living alone for the past month, so I... (laughs) We can tell. (laughs) (laughs) Look... 
<laughs> All I'm saying, if this is the excuse you needed to go out and get lovey or fucky or self-reflecty with whatever aspect of queerness you want, then you can because you are this month's gay of future past, baby. Hell yeah. There we go. There we go. We got there. <laughs> that was very lovely. I feel warm inside now. Oh, I'm glad. Oh, yeah. Love is well, real. Yeah. And you know what? Re... You are also this week's Gay of Future Fuck yes. Oh my God, my wildest dreams have come true. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I was waiting for this moment. One day, one day. (laughs) I humbly accept. Thank you so much for listening to Pronouns in Bio. The real love on the show today is the love that we can feel from you at home right now. We can feel it in our most private part. <laughs> can you feel it? I can feel it. Oh, I can totally feel it, yeah. Feels oh, good. hell yeah. Feels good. Hell yeah. We just wanted to talk to you about the projects we've got going on. We've got a cool little Pronouns in Bio YouTube release coming up that our Patreon supporters are going to see early. That's my project this weekend to get that finished off. We've also got little bits and pieces of bonus content... Some of this we'll talk about on the TL in time, but if you'd like to see this episode as early as tomorrow, the 21st, I don't actually know why I said that because... It's not going to be tomorrow when this goes live. Yeah, you'll already be listening to this episode. Fucking hell, Cleo. What I mean to say is, if you'd like early access to episodes, if you'd like bonus content, if you'd like physical bits and pieces little bits of pronouns and biomemorabilia then you can get access to that and more at co-fee that's ko-fi.com forward slash pronouns cast and patreon.com forward slash pronouns cast and thank you so much to everyone who's donated already you are literally making our wildest fantasies a reality <laughs> we love you we love you especially <laughs> why are you doing the Gino DeCampo accent on your kisses (laughs) bubbity boobity (laughs) even my my grandmother had a wheel she would have been a bike (laughs) for the next part of the show we wanted to talk a little bit about gay romance I guess in literature and film when we were talking about this in the prep that we did before this episode we hit upon the fact that neither of us have seen very many gay romance films for instance i feel like i haven't seen very many of them and that's mostly because i have the expectation that all just going to be sad Mm. i don't know how true that is but i certainly have the impression that a lot of them are just like really sad i don't i don't know if i want that you know i think i'm inclined to agree There definitely is a sense that, I guess particularly in film, but in in literature in general, that gay romance stories are inherently sad. Mm. I think sometimes it's done in an almost pornographic way. Yeah, or like a weirdly voyeuristic way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's almost like the suffering is the point. That's what you're here to witness. Yeah, yeah. I know I dick on blue as the warmest colour. I must have mentioned it at least once every episode on this podcast, but it really is... For me, just the shining example of this, of like a very beautiful story that isn't necessarily like, you know, it's not like homophobic or anything, but I don't think it's queer positive. I think the queerness in it is paradigmatically sad. Do you think that a queer 
positive story has to be a happy one. This is the question, isn't it? I wanted to take us back for a minute to sort of start answering, or I guess unpacking that question, to Radcliffe Hall and the Well of Loneliness. I mean, obviously, the canon of queer literature and queer sadness and stuff, we can project back as long as we have a canon of literature or queerness or sadness. But this, I think, is a big starting point for its generic features in the modern cultural canon. So Radcliffe Hall is a woman, nominally, I'll sort of clarify that in a minute, who is a late 19th century, early 20th century novelist. She stopped using her birth name and started going by Radcliffe Hall. Um, There was recently just an unbelievably poorly informed slash slightly turfy quote-unquote feminist series of publications that were trying to reclaim women's lost names under the presumption that all, yeah, all women who've written under male pen names did so purely because with their own names they'd never have penetrated into the male-dominated publishing industry. It's it's like an ostensibly like noble thing to do, but it requires sensitivity. Yeah, and like exactly. not this kind of broad brush. Like every woman that's ever published under a male name must have done that because of oppression. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is why I'm, I'm sort of almost inclined to be a bit more forgiving with it than the you know Suzanne Moore hate column type stuff, mm. because I can see how it might come from a place of being like, oh, we understand that women have been systematically excluded by patriarchal systems we're reclaiming these women but yeah because of what people like selena todd for instance who is one of the alpha turfs in uk academia at the moment have done in terms of this very narrow-minded way of thinking about gender then you end up with situations where people like radcliffe hall who never used her birth name past a certain point always dressed in male attire did so purely because it was, you know, it was hard to get ahead as a dame in the publishing industry. The thing about Radcliffe Hall is that, so she never, as to my knowledge, changed her pronouns, which is why I'm saying she and woman. There have been lots of great recuperative readings of Radcliffe Hall as a trans man or trans mask. But in terms of my own personal queer historiography, I think it causes as many problems as it offers answers to project these ideas we have about ourselves and gender and sexuality mm. onto the past. Yeah, onto people um, that can't speak for themselves. Exactly, yeah. We, we can only, you know, we, we cannot guess at what Radcliffe Hall wanted besides acceptance, which, you know, really sadly she largely didn't find in her time. We can only do our best to treat her as it seems she might have wanted to be treated. Mm-hmm. With regards to that, The Well of Loneliness, this novel that Radcliffe Hall famously writes, is often treated as the first, I guess, popular lesbian novel in England. And it's inspired by what were then relatively recent developments in psychoanalysis around homosexuality and treated uh, what we would call lesbianism as the product of a sort of inborn so like not treatable and and like inherent but I guess fundamentally broken part of a person so Mm. we've got this you know idea that we're still struggling to get across in some circles today that being gay isn't a choice yeah but for Radcliffe Hall it's a birth defect I guess and she calls it inversion refers to herself as inverted in this this heavily autobiographical work and the story it tells is one of these queer women 
who, because they are fundamentally broken in a way that prevents them from participating in society or reconciling themselves with themselves, mm. just wind up in all sorts of like dreadful, sad, mad ways. Is it presented as like a, a kind of inevitability of the condition? Yes, exactly. It almost yeah. a kind of terminalness to it. Right, yeah. And anyway, this novel is huge. They never think they're going to get it published and then they do. They try to limit circulation by driving up prices, but it doesn't really work. And then the Daily Mail, because they were back then, they were the same as they are now, <laughs> campaigned to have it censored and have Radcliffe Hall tried on grounds of public indecency. That sounds like the Daily Mail. The Bloomsbury Group, so Virginia Woolf et alia, defend Radcliffe Hall, but the Daily Mail are successful. It kind of destroys her, I think, actually. But history lesson aside... I guess there's a kind of mimesis going on here where this archetypal story of women in love who are destroyed by their fatal flaw mm. becomes inseparably tied to this story of a woman who, convinced of her own fatal flaw, is destroyed by others exploiting it. Mm. And I feel like that trajectory has continued to this day where a lot of queer culture unconsciously accepts this idea of the bitterness, the sadness, the mm. inevitability, I suppose. It's a really difficult landscape to traverse, really, because I don't know if I would necessarily buy a queer story that was written ostensibly, you know, quote unquote, in real life, that didn't even try to like acknowledge the difficulties of being queer in real mm. life. Mm. I'm struggling, I guess. And I think that's I think that's really sad. Mm. It's true and sad that like I struggle to imagine a good queer story that could just be about the good stuff. Yeah, I think that's it. Obviously, I don't believe that being a lesbian means something is like inherently broken inside you. But the social component of queerness that has manufactured and continues to manufacture this sadness mm. can't be denied, I guess. It's got to be what you do with the sadness, right? But I'm thinking about kids shows like Steven Universe and She-Ra to an extent Adventure Time and about how something that I love about queer kids cartoons is that there's a happy ending and it's kind of guaranteed mm. that like I don't watch it thinking, oh God, what if this doesn't go the way I want it to? Because I know mm. that by virtue of it being a program meant for kids, that it will. Mm, mm, and I, th mm. But they, that doesn't necessarily mean to say that they don't tackle difficult issues and sadness and loss and pain and grief, mm. but they don't do it in a way that makes you feel hopeless at the end. Mm, mm. They do it in a way that's just like, this is a part of life but we'll get there in the end. I suppose it's no coincidence that all of the shows you describe take place in fantasy worlds, all mm. of which have one way or another suffered an apocalypse or a sort of traumatic break away from an old world, which I guess is the facilitating component, allowing for these not uncomplicated, but less complicated portrayals of queerness. Mm. I think that's the real bittersweet bit for me that the story we can tell our kids is love wins and we can't quite tell it to ourselves. And that the format in which we tell our kids love wins is in a fantasy. Yeah, we have to imagine a fantasy world. 
I guess what we're sort of circling then is what do you do outside if you're not writing a children's cartoon? <laughs> mm. I I guess are there do you think there are ways of telling queer stories that are affirming even if they don't abandon the very real melancholy pricks of this world in favor of something far away? Yes. <laughs> I would very much like to be recommended adult like media that does that kind of specifically as well like where it's written it has queer people involved in the writing and has a queer protagonist i think there's a lot of like straight protagonists with the gay best friend and mm. in a lot of media that's still really uplifting and really positive but like it isn't necessarily like a queer story you know mm. and again i'm thinking of uh sex education on tv and i was thinking of book smart which are also things aimed at teens. Like I'm really struggling to think of stuff that's like <laughs> aimed at adults. Yeah. <laughs> What's that Russell T Davies thing that's just come out about Oh, it's AIDS? a sin. It's a sin. So it's a sin is obviously very talked about at the moment. Mm. And I wonder whether that's really expressing something at the heart of where we're at with delivering these adult stories. It's been both criticised and praised, depending on your perspective, for showcasing both the glowing nostalgia of the queer scene of the 80s and mm. the like terrifying, unimaginable horror of the AIDS crisis. Mm. And I wonder whether that's the point that we're at, particularly in the UK with queer stories for adults in that we're still teasing apart mm. the horror and the generational trauma and the personal sadness from the affirming moment and the glowing memory and yeah it so might just so be too forth. soon right like it, it might just be too soon like we're still recovering and in, in a lot of ways we're still in it right like we're still in it yeah perhaps that's why the children's cartoons are where we do these things because they're the they're the only queer media that is sort of not quite being made in the generational shadow of the aids crisis mm. um which is not that you can make any queer media outside of that shadow but if you know what I mean there almost seems to be a slight distance that's achievable there. Do you think there's also something to be said for the importance of having stories when you're younger and maybe just coming to the realization of who you are for the first time the first story you need to be told is that it's okay and learning then about your history and processing these kind of traumas comes later but first yeah. it ne we need to be told it's okay and that's how kids cartoons get it so right because they know that that's what needs to come first. I couldn't agree more. When I told my college girlfriend that I was bisexual, eagerly sat me down and made me watch Angels in America. What is Angels in America? It's a very famous piece of theatre that's had a very good film adaptation. It's about lots of things, I guess. It's one of those big American theatre pieces that is sort of about America in the mm -hmm. 70s and 80s. But one of the things it's about is masculinity and queerness and AIDS. I'm sure people would say Angels in America is uplifting in lots of ways, but when you're 17 and you're like saying yeah. to, you know, what are your first like serious girlfriends? What are the first people you seriously fall in love with? Like, oh, I'm, I'm actually bisexual. You want your fucking Steven Universe. Not, <laughs> yeah. Not your like searing indictment of the relationship between American politics, masculinity, queerness, and the AIDS crisis. Any straight listeners out there, if any of your friends come out to you, don't redirect them to like something that's just like full of trauma and about how sad it is yeah. to be a gay person in the first instance. <laughs> like She-Ra and Steven Universe are right there. Just stick them on. You'll you'll do fine. We had this the other day in book club. We were trying to pick something new to read. And all of the books that were about gay stuff 
were just like searing, like mm. painful, an excruciating read. And I'm like, what fucking <laughs> masochists have they got up at the review boards? You know? Yeah. It's just such a difficult thing to resolve because, you know, we've we've just literally sat here and said about like the importance of telling those stories. But also that shouldn't be the only story we tell, right? It can't just be the sadness and the trauma. Yeah. I think there are ways of moderating it, right? Like yeah. you can tell queer stories that are bittersweet, but there are definitely little like pain piggies working up at the telegraph or the spectator or whatever <laughs> and just being like every single book that comes through their hands and is like a little gay kid gets poverty and dies of homophobia and they're just like, yes, five stars. They're just like, fuck yeah. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> it literally is. Jesus. I mean, I'm not, I'm not actually much of a Russell T. Davis fan, but kudos for him for making a show about AIDS that wasn't just like a little gay kid gets poverty and AIDS and dies. And home. dies, yeah. I think you and I should go away and watch It's a Sin and then talk about it. Yeah, let's talk about it on the next show. Yeah. And lots of people are talking about it. I just don't want to be sad. <laughs> yeah, I know. So, for the next segment of the show is our Ally of the Week. Um, when we look at someone... I guess in the past they've been both real and fictional, but <laughs> this one is real and sincere, I promise, who has shown good allyship recently. Ree, could you tell us who this month's Ally of the Week is? This month's Ally of the Week is Pedro Pascal. Very, very much real, not fictional, just an all-round good guy. And so who is Pedro Pascal and why is he our Ally of the Week? He's a pretty famous actor. You've probably heard of him. If you haven't, just Google them. You probably recognize him. His most famous thing that he's doing at the moment is uh, he's the face of The Mandalorian, the Disney Star Wars TV show. And the reason why he's my ally of the week is for two reasons. So the first reason and the most important reason is that his sister, Lux Pascal, uh, recently came out as a trans woman. And Pedro was like fucking here for it just absolutely gassing her up on Twitter, just being like, amazing, fantastic, perfect to like everything she was doing. And it was great. So yeah, like that's a quite obvious ally of the week nomination there. But I'm also nominating him because he really tried his best with Gina Carano. So fill us in a bit on what the Gina Carano situation is, because you had to brief me on this before the episode. So Gina Carano used to be the like the kind of face of women's MMA yeah, just big, strong lady. And then she's recently kind of gone into acting. And she was Pedro's co-star in The Mandalorian. But she has that classic fatal flaw of never logging off, <laughs> which seems to be getting, you know, catching up to a few people these days who seem to just not be able to log off, even though Disney is literally begging them to log off. And they're just like, no. It started when she put fake pronouns in her bio, which were like beep slash bop slash beep as her pronouns. Cool. And Solid joke. Just like classic conservative one joke. Like I actually heard like... this cracking one about a helicopter. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so she put that bullshit in her actual like name, not just her like bio and her actual name on Twitter. And... Pedro Pascal kind of off screen pulled her to one side and was just like, 
explained why people put their pronouns in their bio and about like how it's important for trans people and like you know visibility and things particularly with pedro with a recently out sister she sent this tweet that was like oh you know pedro spoke to me and he helped me understand why people put them in their bios i didn't know this before but i do know now i'm not going to put them in my bio but i also stand against bullying and the freedom to choose and it was just like okay but then she kept the boot bot beep in her bio Mm -hmm. so then i'm guessing you know she was called out for it and then she tweeted just this absolutely insane tweet where she compared herself being bullied to Jews being victimized by Nazis in the Holocaust. Yeah. And Disney are a little bit sensitive to anti-Semitism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's they fired her. That, that is so like, she had so much credit as well because it's... like you can get away with anything while you're doing transphobia. Just like the, the big thing you have to not do is say it's like the Nazis are after you. Yeah, and compare yourself to, to the Jews in the Holocaust because people are telling you to stop being transphobic. Yeah, so obviously Disney were just like, nah, like that's that's done. And I, I think I want to be careful here as well to not be like, oh, good job Disney for like standing up for the rights of minorities like they absolutely did this from a business perspective that like oh yeah it's definitely a case that while she was doing the pronouns thing she wasn't going to make a cut on the profit margins but then the minute she went full galaxy brain Disney you know is very very careful to maintain its image as this like family friendly brand and like you say a bit of transphobia doesn't seem to bother many people nowadays it's good for the family yeah it's good good fun for the family but yeah yeah. (laughs) I got your section 28 right here anti-semitism that's a paddling so (laughs) (laughs) isn't that the exact text of the labor inquiry (laughs) (laughs) yes so she was fired um and pedro pascal basically came out and was just like guys i really tried like i really tried with gina but she just wouldn't log off basically (laughs) so yeah i think props to him for putting in the effort against what was clearly a lost cause yeah. but in a in a funny turn of events basically immediately gina signed up to like a movie deal with the daily wire which is like hosted by ben shapiro and they're like gonna put out like a movie together or something like who knows <laughs> it's so good i just really want to know you know like obviously i feel sorry for gina carano nobody should be blasted out of space by jeremy corbyn's lasers but <laughs> I just desperately want to see what her and Ben Shapiro are going to do to rival the Star Wars franchise, you know? Whether you like Star Wars or not, it's got some clout, you know? Like, (laughs) Ben Shapiro pushing her along in a little go-kart covered in tinfoil. She was going to get her own spin-off as her character in The Mandalorian. Like, she had it made. She had it absolutely made and she just could not stop tweeting. Promise me that inevitably when I develop some like obscene prejudice as now I'm in my 30s, I I, I just will. Uh, I can feel it coming already. I I don't know who it's (laughs) going to be towards, but it's coming. Just promise me that you will like stay my hand when I go for that. This is like the Nazis persecuting Jews in the Holocaust button. Is in like you want you want to make me force you to log off. When the day comes when I finally boomify and decide that I'm being cancelled <laughs> and this is basically the same as the greatest act of human persecution in history. I'll get a digger and I'll dig up your internet cables outside your street and I'll yeah. cut them for you. <laughs> just 
Cut the fucking power. <laughs> I'll call not... up the national grid and be like, look, can you just press the big red button that says, like, log off for Cleo? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Jesus. So, yeah, Pedro Pascal, a genuine, non-ironic ally of the week. Thank you, Pedro. Thank yeah. you very much. We're going to tag you in this when we promote this on Twitter and we'd love a reply. Yeah. Pedro, we showed you our dicks. Please respond. <laughs> I was saying to Bree before we started and I just want to repeat it here because I fucking love it about Ben Shapiro's new book he's got coming out. I don't know whether this will be the subject of the Gina Carano Star Wars rival, but he's written a book and obviously it's like incredibly racist. It's mm-hmm. like not even... You know, we kind of joke about the way that people appropriate these like terrible acts of prejudice and violence and... Ben Shapiro's book is very funny in a lot of ways, but also it is just like insanely racist and it's crazy that it's going to print. You're laughing at it, not with it, right? But it is about this like weedy little dweeb who is <laughs> tiny in school. And then when he hits late puberty, blooms and becomes a six foot four Chad Marine. <laughs> What's the, is that the story? Like, does anything else happen or is that the story? I mean, I want to clarify, I've read like excerpts of this book and even the kindest selection that one can find of it is still so not just bad, but like eye-meltingly offensive that there is no way I'm going to put myself through it. Yeah, yeah. The premise is that like some limp-wristed Chicago and Democrat president is collaborating with Black Lives Matter to blow up oh, God. America or something. Yeah, literally, literally. Oh, no. However bad you're imagining it is, it's worse. it is worse. Yeah. But let's draw back to the fact that internationally recognised manlet Ben Shapiro <laughs> has <laughs> written his self-insert into this fucking racist slog fest. As if he's still waiting on his late puberty to come through. <laughs> you told me when we were in planning, you actually told me how old Ben Shapiro is. He's like 37, he's 37. Right? I cannot believe that. I cannot he's believe that. He's 37 and he's going to hit his growth spurt any year now. <laughs> it's going to happen for you, Ben. I'm manifesting it for you. Yeah. <laughs> I want to say like, short kings, short people of all genders. This is absolutely not on you. Ben is no pun, bringing you low. Like, <laughs> as someone who has hit their head on every mind your head sign. I'm a short king. It's fine. You're allowed to make jokes. <laughs> exactly. God, I wish I could go in the machine from the fly and give a couple of my extra inches to Shapiro. But it is unironically funny that he has somehow, despite being cis, given himself transition goals in his new book. Oh, shit. Yeah, he has. Oh, fuck. <laughs> Reluctantly, we have to stand. Reluctantly, we stand. <laughs> Fucking shredded trans man, Ben Shapiro. <laughs> okay, no, like, this is not an endorsement. Do not buy his book. Just making that very clear. Do not buy his book. But please do donate to his hormone fund. <laughs> <sighs> okay. <laughs> That's enough of that. I've had enough of that now. I had a moment where I let that one sit in the space and then was just like, no. Don't like that. <laughs> Let's go back to talking about Joe Biden, shall we? No. no. <laughs> this is now a Joe Biden, Ben Shapiro shipping podcast. Just to round up, on the show today, we wanted to talk a little bit about Hadaway Voice, What is Love? <laughs> nice. 
Thank you. Don't you think that song has got like the biggest like party currency of any one tune? Absolutely. Yeah. It's never an inappropriate time for it. Yeah. And like a lot of oldies are a bit like, you know, if someone put Queen on at the party, you'd oh, be a no. bit like, oh. Miss me with that. And that's not to say there's anything wrong with a bit of Freddy, but there's something about Hadaway's What Is Love that it just comes on and you're like, oh, fuck yeah, this shit's going to pop off. I think I could be in any musical setting and I would mm. welcome Hadaway's What Is Love. Like I could be yeah, exactly. Like in a jazz club. I could be at like a fucking jungle rave and a bit of Hadaway fuck. comes on and I'll just fucking love it. And everyone around me would as well. Is that a white thing though? I think that's pretty white. there's like a couple of songs that like white people just always lose their shit to so like fucking toto's africa is one of them journeys don't stop believing is one of them and i have a sneaking suspicion that hadaway's what is love may also be one of them i'm fucking torn actually i'm fucking torn between this podcast's commitment to critiquing whiteness and our self-critiquing whiteness and wanting to say that there is something qualitatively different between Toto's Africa and Hadaway's What is Love. Because mm. Toto's Africa is just like... Uh, 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 <laughs> what is love is like... How's it go? Ba, 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 Sorry, do that again. Ba, 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 ba. <laughs> I said Toto's Africa is like... Uh, 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 oh my God. Hadaway's What is Love is like... Ba, 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 Please ba, never ba. ever make that sound again. I hate that that's it's appropriate for the love episode because that is the noise I make when I come. <laughs> I do the whole of Toto's Africa as well. That was just a song. <laughs> it works in any chemical setting as well. Like, what is love comes on when you're like five beers deep in a flat roof pub with a deeply unsavory attitude and you're just like, hell yeah. But, you know, it comes on and it's just like 5.30 a.m. and your pingers are starting to get a bit rusty and you're like, oh, I love this track, <laughs> you know? It's so, a vibe for all seasons. What is love? I was going to ask you, now I've got to answer it. <laughs> I think what we mean is that when we talk about queer love, whatever that phrase might mean, it's too often defined by arbitrary markers of sexuality or of gender. Um, or, the, if, you know, to strip that down a bit, as if love is a stepping stone on the road to who you want to have sex with. And I don't think that that's the case. When I think about love, I'm not thinking about love between like a couple, right? Like mm. it's, it's bigger and broader than that. And it can be found anywhere. And yeah, I think, I think if you try to cultivate love in all of your relationships, whether that's with your friends, your family, with your pets, you know, with the plant, the house plants around you, like cultivating a relationship like based on love is always going to be fulfilling. Not letting yourself be defined by narrow notions of love. You know, yeah. my my perhaps slightly overblown beef with the online poly crowd has uh, <laughs> been well documented on this podcast. But it is absolutely true that whatever form love sincerely takes for you, then you know, let yourself be guided by that. Yeah. Me and Rhi were saying the other day that we are functionally a polycule. Sorry, Lou. <laughs> sorry, Blythe. You're being informed of this now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on the podcast. Not because, you know, me and Rhi are sleeping together. Unfortunately, we were both cursed by a witch. That was the most, like, awkward joke. <laughs> 
Why is that awkward? <laughs> just awkward. <laughs> hey, man, if you want me to go back and ask the witch so that we can get down to it, then I, I fucking can. I'm trying to be mature about, like, what love is here. I'm sorry, please continue. Thank you. Anyway, so yes, the reason we're not boning raw is a witch. <laughs> My point is we love each other in a way that's very, very important. Yes. And not defined by the fact that we're in separate monogamous sexual relationships. Yes. But is defined in all sorts of other different ways that go above and beyond that. And is very yes. important and is very special. Yes, agreed. I love you, Cleo. I love you too. Oh, <laughs> I don't know. Is that a bit much? Is that a bit much for the podcast? I don't know if the listeners at home are just being like, oh, stop. I think that was quite nice. You think? I think that was quite nice. Our contact details go on the podcast if they want to write it and tell us it was a bit much. All right. I think going forward, we should definitely adopt that rule that if like no one writes in to tell us to not do the thing, we're fine to do the thing. They can't accuse us of being off brand given that I said that we're not having sex because a witch cast a spell on us. <laughs> yeah, true. Which is really like just a fucking dumb thing to say, even <laughs> by my standards. <laughs> but I did it for the pod. Did it for the pod. Speaking of doing it for the pod, shall we start wrapping up? Yes. Ordinarily on the show, we talk about like a charitable cause. What we wanted to do today was to say, rather than any specific organisation, look to your queer networks, to your online networks, to your friends, your family, your blood family, your found family, maybe your houseplants, who knows? And see who is there who needs some love, whether it's financial support, loneliness, whatever, anyone who needs some love and go to them. And that is our, not to do the girl reading this bit at home, but that is the pronouns in bio cause this month. Yep. Tell your friends you love them. And, you know, if you live with your friends, maybe maybe give them a little kiss on the forehead. <laughs> We're going back to the whole admiring your naked flatmate thing again. No, this is pure. This isn't... You know me. I'm sex negative and I'm thinking purely of how... Look, I haven't kissed any of my friends on the forehead for so long. That's true. Because I'm of really COVID. looking forward to, like, little friendship kisses again. Oh, it's going to be so it's nice. It's going to be so nice. So those of you out there... Kiss your friends. And if your friends live on the computer, then kiss the computer. (laughs) I can't see. The NSA are watching you through your webcam, but what are they going to do? Just get up right now and kiss the computer. (laughs) Kiss your friends in a appropriately COVID safe manner. Yeah, God, don't kiss them in a non-COVID safe manner. No. If you're worried about COVID, do just kiss the computer. Yeah. My partner's moving in after we've had quite a long time apart because of COVID. And I've been practicing kissing on the computer just to make sure I've not come out of practice. In what do you, in what way? Well, just, you know, get on the computer and you open a drawing program and you draw a little face <laughs> and then you kind of turn the chair around a bit and then you look over your shoulder to the right and you're like, oh, <laughs> I didn't see you there. So it's like the equivalent of kissing your hand, but doing it in MS Paint. Well, yeah, but kissing your hand's not very fucking COVID safe, is it, Ree? God. <laughs> Sorry. That's where all the ger- That's the bit you're that's, supposed to that's watch. That's true. That's where all the germs are. Well, I guess my computer probably has germs now, but only because I've been kissing it so much. (laughs) Kiss your own computer. I can't stress that enough. All of this tells me that it is about high fucking time that your partner moved in with you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God. (laughs) I shaved my legs for the first time in COVID the other day and it was like cracking open a 10,000 year old sarcophagus. (laughs) 
was like, whoa. <laughs> Should we wrap up this motherfucking podcast? Yeah. Thank you for listening. If you're still listening at this point, thanks. Thank you so much for listening. We love you. Love yourselves. Put the pronouns in the bio. Put the pronouns in the bio, baby. That's the catchphrase. It's pronouns in bio. Pronouns in Bio is produced by Ree Brignall and Cleo Madeline. If you'd like to get in touch with us and talk about something you'd like to see on the show in future, suggestions for gays of future past or ally of the week, then you can reach us at pronouncecast on Twitter or Instagram, and we are pronouncecast at gmail.com. If you like what we do and you'd like to see more of it in future, then you can contribute to us at patreon.com forward slash pronouncecast and ko-fi.com forward slash pronouncecast. That's ko-fi.com forward slash pronouns cast. We're also always happy to feature other queers out there on the show, so if you know a guest who might be good for the podcast, or you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, then please do drop us a line. Thanks so much for listening.